Welcome to the last episode of 7 Minutes in Heaven with the Scientist, Season 1. You might have missed us over the last month. We've been pretty busy. Lauren, tell them what you've been up to. So I've been part of the amazing team that launched the Journal of Public Interest Communications. This is the first peer-reviewed journal in the field. It's open access, which means if you want to read these articles that have been peer-reviewed and are going to contribute knowledge to um, our field, you can do so. So... If you're interested in learning more, go to journals.fcla.edu slash JPIC. Nice. And we'll make sure to put that up on the Frank Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the 7 Minutes in Heaven with the scientist.com webpage, and you will have that. You should read it. It's all free, and you could be the smartest person in the room. As always. As always. Well, while you were doing that, I was doing some research. I was looking for more scientists to bring on our show, and I came across one story on The Conversation, which is a fantastic website you should go if you're interested in reading the latest research. And the article outlined and covered what makes a Pulitzer Prize-winning story. And what did this article say makes a Pulitzer Prize-winning story? Well, this isn't going to necessarily be surprising to our audience because, hello, they're Franksters, they're communicators, they're storytellers. But the thing that was true across all of the, the Pulitzer Prize-winning stories were that they were very emotional. Really? That's interesting. It's interesting because it seems sort of obvious, but when you look at journalism as an institution or a career, one of the, the, the flagship components of it is this dedication to objectivity, right? That um, you're, that the, the journalist does not put into the story their emotions or their perspective. They just report what is. But looking at stories, looking at these Pulitzer Prize winning stories over a 20-year period, and I think even longer, she found that all of these stories were very emotional. That's interesting. It is. So in this episode of Seven Minutes in Heaven with a Scientist, we're going to talk to that researcher, and she's going to dive into this even more, and you all are going to totally eat it up and love it. So we're talking to Dr. Karen Ball-Jorgensen. She's the Director of Research Development and Environment at the School of Journalism, Medium, and Cultural Studies at Cardiff University. And she's really interested in the role of emotion in journalism, but she's also gonna talk to us a little bit about user-generated content and the role of citizens in producing the news. That sounds fascinating, let's go. Okay. Karen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So as you know, at 7 Minutes in Heaven with the Scientists, we have academic crushes on researchers whose work we're totally obsessed with. So we have to know, what is the research question that you are most obsessed with? Well, uh, for me, what has been really interesting is to look at the role of emotion in storytelling And that's been particularly interesting because I think that it's something that researchers haven't historically paid a lot of attention to, but at the same time, it plays a really central role in generating audience engagement. One thing that I thought was really interesting, in a study that you did on user-generated content for uh, the BBC, like personal videos and blogs and photos, 
Um, you say that that sort of content often feels more authentic and credible. Why do you think that it feels more authentic? Does it have something to do with emotions? I think that it feels more authentic to audiences because you are able to empathize with the person actually providing the user-generated content because you get to see the world through their eyes. You get to see what their experience is like. So it really is a strong way of generating an emotional connection. It gives the audience a sense of what it's like to be there on the ground. Do you have any examples of user-generated content that you feel just exemplify that? Back in 2006, when we started doing this research, there was this huge flood in the north of England. One example that we use in talking to focus groups about user-generated content uh, came from a woman who was actually experiencing the flood. So instead of running away from her house and saving her belongings, what she actually did was to film the floodwaters as they came into her house. So she filmed the water creeping up inside her living room and creeping up along the sofa. And as she was doing that, she was talking about how she was feeling. That was a really strong way of actually showing audiences what it felt like to be caught up in a flood. One thing that that makes me think about is this idea of psychological distancing. There's this research that says that it's hard for us to comprehend sort of catastrophes or you know, disasters if they're far away from us. But if they feel local or immediate, then we, we can feel more empathy. Do you think that's what's going on with user-generated content? Well, I, I think that is certainly some of what's going on. I mean, what uh, I have seen in my own research on disaster coverage is that places that are geographically, culturally, or economically distant from us tend to be reported uh, with less care in the media. So we tend to have less understanding about, for instance, what is going on in Syria in terms of what it's actually like for the people on the ground. So we might understand or hear basic statistics like 4.8 million people have fled outside of Syria to neighboring countries or 6.6 million people are internally displaced within the country. But what makes us really understand the situation on the ground is when we hear stories from people who are actually living through this conflict. That makes me think about those posts that went out through Twitter, the young girl who was tweeting from her apartment um, while bombs were dropping, or a tweet that went out that said, this might be my last tweet. I felt like that was so powerful as compared to some of the general news coverage of Syria. That's right, and our focus group research certainly shows that audience members tend to believe that material that comes directly from people on the ground, like tweets you're talking about, that they're somehow more authentic, more real than the more kind of cold and distanced material that you tend to get from a more conventional hard news journalistic report. So is it better then to have users tell stories? Well, I think that you do need the careful reporting that's done by journalists to actually establish what the facts are. But if you can get users to tell their own stories, then like we just talked about, it can be seen 
as being more authentic. So it's better to hear about the experience, for example, of someone living on food stamps and what it's like for them to try to you know, feed themselves and their families uh, rather than just having the pure statistics that 43 million Americans rely on food stamps. So it's a way of giving voice to the people on the ground. How can journalists and storytellers incorporate user-generated content into their work? I think that, that um, as a journalist, you both need the careful reporting um, and the information that audiences require for each story, um, and you need something that makes audiences engage with the stories, and that's where I think things like user-generated com- content come in, that they provide these kinds of personal and emotional stories that often make very abstract, very, very abstract big stories tangible and accessible to audiences. Speaking of journalism, you've studied Pulitzer Prize-winning journalism over a 20-year period from 1995 to uh, 2016. Why did you focus on Pulitzer Prize-winning stories? I decided to study uh, the Pulitzer Prize and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalism because it's the most prestigious prize in journalism in the United States, which is a country that's most closely associated with a traditional practice of objectivity in journalism. And winning a Pulitzer Prize is a marker of success and excellence. I wanted to see what happens if we look more closely at the type of journalism you see in the Pulitzer Prize. So what did you find in your work? I found some very interesting things. I mean, first of all, it's important to note here that Pulitzer Prize winning stories are quite distinctive and and different from kind of normal day-to-day journalism in some sense. They're not small, everyday stories. They're big stories about huge abstract events that we need to understand. They're about things like conflict, wars, the economy, globalizations, breakthroughs in science and breakthroughs in in research. So they're about these these huge topics that can be very difficult for audiences to access. And there's a need for some kind of way to anchor these big stories in people's lives so that you can actually recognize yourself in the story. What I found in actually looking at how Pulitzer Prize-winning stories go about their storytelling is that there are two things that tend to characterize the winning stories. On the one hand, they're marked by painstaking research, often by teams of very hardworking investigative reporters who have been uh, reporting that story for months potentially. But on the other hand, they frequently illustrate the facts that they've gathered through personal stories Um, often very emotional ones, so that the reader is able to empathize with the experience of the people who are actually caught up in the events. So it's not just telling anecdotal stories, but it's finding a story grounded in the research. That's right. For instance, it's a way of illustrating a story about breakthroughs in DNA technology um, by telling Um, of a small boy with an incurable disease and his relationships to his family and how a doctor tries to cure his disease. 
So you spent a lot of time with Pulitzer Prize winning stories. Are there any elements that popped out to you? Several different things. One of the most striking things was the fact that actually being objective and using emotionality are not mutually exclusive. Instead, the the two things go hand in hand. One of the main ways in which journalists achieve this is through what I refer to as the outsourcing of emotional labor. And that is to say that journalists don't actually express their own emotions They didn't do that in any of the stories that I looked at. But instead, they make their sources talk about how they feel, and they make their sources share their stories with the audience. Then there's also a more complex kind of narrative strategy that the journalists use telling personal stories. And that is that they rely on a set of what we might see as shared cultural agreements about what makes something emotionally resonant or tragic. What I mean by that specifically is that there are many Pulitzer Prize-winning stories that talk about the experience of parents, sick or dying children, and that's because all of us know what an absolutely devastating tragedy it would be to lose a child. So that's something that has a great cultural resonance and that we understand immediately why it's such a powerful thing that can happen happen to people and that will really affect them profoundly. That makes me think of the story of Aline Kurdi, the, the Syrian boy who washed ashore. And that story went viral, I would imagine, because we can all see a child that we love in that in that boy. And so it's sort of this shared universal value or this shared universal tragedy that we're all experiencing. Well, that's right. The story of Alan Kurdi and the image that was ended up being circulated quite widely of, of him was precisely resonant because it was a way of dramatizing this refugee crisis, which all of us know about. We all know the staggering figures, but it was a way of actually telling us a story about one particular individual, one child who had died as a result of this very dangerous journey. So at a time then when there's a magnifying glass on journalists, and some might say we're in a journalism crisis, how can they and other storytellers navigate this sort of fake news climate? Well, I think that having facts is actually more important than it ever was before in this time of of fake news and the decline of trust in media organizations. But at the same time, as a storyteller, you also have to be aware that you need to ultimately engage the reader. So that is to say, in a sense, you need to be both dedicated to objectivity and and also to this kind of personal emotional storytelling. And then a final thing that I think the example of Alan Cordy really demonstrates is that visual information and visual imagery is seen as something that's more trustworthy and authentic at this particular moment. And this, I think, in part has to do with the increasing role of social media, where there's a sense that if you can see something with your own eyes, then it must be trustworthy. So visual information is also actually really crucial to audience engagement. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us for seven minutes in heaven, maybe a little more than seven minutes, but... Uh, This was so enlightening. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. 
So that was a really interesting interview. I feel like I learned a lot. I know, right? She's totally awesome. I am right now reading through all of her research. I printed it all and it is fascinating. I am telling you all, put a Google alert on this scientist. She is fantastic. So that brings us to the end of our first season of the podcast and we are ready to move into the second season. We're taking the summer off. That's right. We're going to spend the summer digging into new research, playing with new formats, experimenting. But in order to do that, we need your help. We want to make sure we're producing shows that answer the questions that you have to do your work even better. So whether you're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Snapchat, follow us. We are Frank Gathering. And send us your show ideas. Send us your questions. And we will incorporate those into season two. You can also find us on our website, 7 Minutes in Heaven with a Sign scientist.com and send us an email and you can also listen to old shows there by the way we hope you all have a great summer and we'll be back in the fall bye